this week on a lively experiment, the long-awaited settlement of the Providence teacher's contract. But what's in it? And a COVID surge nationally has some leaders rethinking masking policies. We'll tell you what Governor McKee has to say. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Brown University political science professor Wendy Schiller, attorney and former state representative Dan Riley, and political contributor Scott McKay. Welcome in, everybody. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. Governor McKee's announcement this week was big news, but with little details. Several months after shaking up the negotiating team, the governor announced the state achieved something it had failed to do under his predecessor, strike a contract agreement with the Providence Teachers Union. Uh, good news to hear, but Wendy, it was where's the beef? I don't know what's more aggravating. I mean, it was good to hear, but, you know, we want details, right? Yeah, I mean, these are taxpayer dollars, ultimately. It's public school. We, we, I think we all want these kinds of labor disputes to be resolved, particularly when it comes to education, particularly coming out of a very difficult year for parents, families, and teachers in the Providence uh, school system. But why announce a deal and then say, well, I can't really give you any details? I thought, well, what, what do you mean you can't give us details? We're ultimately paying for this. So I don't understand the wisdom of that. I think it was has to do with Alorza, Mayor Alorza, and sort of saying, listen, I, I got this. Stop, stop criticizing me. But uh, it's not ratified. They're going to have to take it back to the base, and we don't even know what's in it. The other thing is you never know until the membership ag agrees, right? And there could be some rogue faction. The seniority has been a big deal. But you would think to make that announcement, they'd have to at least have most of the people on board, right? Well, yeah, you certainly don't want to go public with something that you're going to lose uh, the vote on. Whether you're a legislative leader or the governor, you know, the union leaders, you don't because it'll it'll signal weakness if it goes down and everyone looks bad. I think in this case, the governor is looking for a quick win. Um, you know, the legislature is out of session, and so he has a bit of a vacuum that he can fill with some news. Granted, it's the middle of summer. So I think it was the governor's office, I, I would say, jumping the gun a bit on the announcement. Once you have a ratified contract, absolutely, you've resolved something that was outstanding for a long time. But they Whether said it's they good had or not, the membership know. hadn't even seen it yet. Right. So there's really no, there's nothing to talk about. I suppose there's nothing for them to argue about or things that they don't like that they could go public with, which is, I guess, a communications win for the governor. But at the end of the day, you're not really accomplishing anything. I think they just wanted the quick hit in the news cycle. You got any intel down there, Scotty? I don't know. I haven't seen the specifics. We all know that's the most important thing here. However, I think you announced something like this because you don't want it to leak out before you have talked to the union folks and before you know you're going to win ratification vote. That union unlike some others, uh, has generally been pretty pro-leadership. When the leadership makes a deal, the Providence teachers usually go along. What I'm interested in is wondering about diversity. We all know that you've got a situation in Providence where 90% of the kids are minority folks, uh, and then you have about 80% of the teachers who are majority white. And I'm wondering how that you can change this given some of the seniority rules. Now, if we look at the police department, you have to really give a lot of credit to Chief Clements and Commissioner Perry 
for how diverse the Providence Police Department's gotten. And I understand there's a difference there because teachers have to teach longer in the system to get their pensions, their full pensions, than uh, cops and firefighters. I get all that. But I'm just wondering the specifics, how this will affect hiring. They've always talked about how, oh, go ahead. No, I just, I think um, Scott's point is really well taken. You can sell this package, I think, to the public if it has stronger um, active measures to increase diversity in the teaching pool uh, with uh, protections for seniority. Somehow they've got to have struck a balance there because if they haven't, you know that people like Nellie Gorbea, who's running for governor, you know that Jorge Lorza, who's the mayor of Providence, who may or may not run for governor, but in a Democratic primary, you know, that's something that will be a weakness in this agreement for McKee. So you expect that there, is, there are more things that are stipulated now than ever before. That's what you'd expect to see. It drove me nuts. They, uh, Jorge Lorza's office put out a, a statement that said, I'm glad because we brought in the state. He was shoved off to the side and had nothing to do with this. So he makes, you know, if he uses the word transformational one more time, I'm going to scream. The larger <laughs> question is, though, it, they've always said the contract's going to be kind of the foundation for where we go. We've lost two years. We've lost generations with the kids. So if this really is a transformational contract, you wonder when the rest is going to fall into place. It won't happen overnight, obviously. Right, and, and the governor has full ownership now with the state in, involved in the schools. So it's going to take more than the contract and resolving them. That was going to have to happen anyways. And it's been going on for so long that, you know, they obviously have to, to put that to bed. But there are so many larger issues that the governor owns, but the mayor can't walk away from because the, the mayor did not succeed in that area, arguably. The state did have to come in. So you have uh, the governor having to get resolution and come up with a plan far beyond a labor agreement. We have to talk about capital improvement in the schools. We have to talk about achievement in the schools. With Governor McKee especially, the question of charters and their involvement in Providence is always going to be a big question. It'll be for everyone, but especially given his track record on the issue. So, I mean, th this is very much the, still the first chapter on this story. It's definitely going to play into the Democratic primary, especially if Mayor Lors uh, uh, does jump in. But he can't really claim credit, but there's a lot that the governor has to do before he can as well. I think we have to understand uh, just what Dan's saying here. There's a political calculus here. If you look at that Democratic primary, it's basically made up of liberals, labor, and Latinos. And what McKee's trying to do, and I understand why he's trying to do it, is to repair some of the frayed relations he had with organized labor in this state. And you can't literally get the AFL-CIO endorsement. And I wouldn't be surprised if they sit out the primary. But you can't get their endorsement, really, without the teachers, given the two-thirds majority you need to win their endorsement. And we all know that Seth Magaziner is very close to a lot of the top labor folks in this state. So I think there's a political calculus here, uh, the same way there was with the new lieutenant governor. I think that McKee is trying to position himself so that he's got a shot at the primary. What about the governor's race? Well, you know, I'm waiting to hear a little bit more about the Republican side. You know, like, is there any, you know, it might be a really good year for Republicans in 2022 nationally. We're waiting to see, but a midterm election with a Democratic president usually is. Um, and I think there's a lot of leftover energy uh, amongst Republicans. Uh, sometimes it goes to anger about the Trump uh, uh, defeat. But in general, there's energy. I mean, they're a pretty energized base right now. So I'm waiting to see if the division that we're expecting to see in the primary hurts the Democrats at all, even though it 
is increasingly a pretty democratic state. So, but I, I think we're waiting to see who, who jumps in when. I mean, Magaziner's raising a, a lot of money. McKee is raising money, but Magaziner has a lot of money. The question is, when do you make the announcement? When do you actually get in, and how long do you wait before you really start to try to line up? And it's very difficult to line up support when you've got an incumbent governor with a lot, you know, with not a lot of power. Who raised three hundred fifty thousand dollars last quarter? Right, right. right. Who's got power uh, in, in the next coming year over a lot of things in Rhode Island? Who, you know, is trying to position himself uh, uh, to appeal to as many constituencies in the party as possible? That's a pretty tough thing to do. I, I also thought it was refreshing, though, that Governor McKee he vetoed the auto body bill and he took he had taken money. So it's not like okay, there's look, there often is a quid pro quo. I'm not going to say that doesn't ever happen. But they were uh, they were um, significant contributors, and he said, "No, I didn't believe in this legislation." But there's other people on the other side who are also big contributors. The insurance companies, right. for instance. So sometimes it's your special interest against my special interest. Let's be honest. Sue Sienke sat in your seat. This is not the Republican seat. It just happens to be the, uh, the two weeks in a row. And said, and of course, Ted Nisi was in your seat and said, so, uh, Chairwoman, what, who do we have coming up? Uh, and she said, we will have a candidate. It'll be a good candidate. So I think the two names now, you think about Blake Filippi, although he seemed a little ambivalent. I don't know if that's kind of faux ambivalence. And then will we see Fung 3.0? I don't, I don't know. Do you get any sense? Well, so I, I think, you know, we certainly haven't seen the last of Mayor Fung, and I think he has interest in doing something. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's another run at governor, um, but, you know, I, I think we're going to be hearing more from him. Um, and, and same with Blake. You know, Blake's in a position where he naturally has that megaphone as the minority leader and along with uh, Senator Algier in the Senate, one of two ranking Republicans in the state. So there are going to be, you know, we're going to hear from Blake certainly in the next session. We may hear from him in the fall if they come back for a special session. So it remains to be seen if, you know, his interest lies in continuing to pilot the caucus or if he wants to run for general office. And as, you know, the chairman has said before, we, uh, you know, we may very well have that Don Kacheri type candidate come out of the woodwork. Um, you know, there, there are always people who are talking. There's not, at this point, there's no one in a serious conversation, but there are always people who are talking who could come out of nowhere and really shake up the race, even without a record. Someone you may not know their name, but it doesn't take a lot of money in this state to boost name recognition fairly quickly. And on the Democratic side, you're going to have what probably would be a fierce primary. They'll beat each other up. They'll beat each other up, which, of course, then creates the other situation <laughs> We can hardly wait, Scott. The, the winner doesn't need that much at that yeah. point to actually win. But, um, yeah, I, I would still say it's it's so early at this point. It, well, and it, as the resident historian, you know it took Bruce Sundland three tries. I'm not saying that that's analogous to Alan Fung. But, you know, Republican governors have done pretty well. You, you, you subtract out Raimondo and Chafee, it was basically Dupreet, Almond, and Kachiri for a, the better part of several decades. Yeah, it was. So I there's a path. I think we will know fairly soon uh, who's in this Republican scrum, merely because you're going to have to start raising money at some point. You just can't wait forever anymore. That's not the way politics works. And it's going to take some money. The interesting thing about the Republican Party in this state is I can't think of another state in the country where you can get a major party nomination for governor with 15,000 votes in a primary. It's just maybe Vermont, but I'll tell you, I, I really... Is anybody else on your radar screen from the Republican Party? No, I mean, Party? I was thinking about Blake also. Uh, you know, I just He's think an attractive candidate. He, I and he's, say you know, that. he comes across well uh, on, uh, obviously, television or video or whatever, you know, social media. I, I do think 
Um, that you know, and I, again, I think it's it, at the moment it looks to be a very good year for Republicans across the country. So, what does the Republican Governors Association do with Rhode Island? Do they say forget it, it's not worth the money, or do we start to see them holding some fundraisers and trying to cultivate? I mean, the Republicans, if they gain momentum and energy, they may just want to just sweep at every level and really enhance the power structure that they have for the next decade if they do well in 2022 at the state level. So, I think if there's money and if there's some viability, I think the key is better positioned against frankly, than any of the other candidates, because they're sort of experienced politician versus experienced politician. McKee is trying to carve out what you might call the moderate road. We'll see how much he can maintain that it, in the primary. It's interesting what you said about national money, because you remember in the John Robitaille race, if he'd had a couple of uh, yeah. four-way race in 2010, if he'd had a couple of more weeks and that money started coming in, it was very close in that race. But everybody who loses says that. If I only had another week, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a political kind of cliche. I think a moderate can win in New England. I think you've seen Phil Scott in Vermont. Charlie Baker has long been one of the more popular governors uh, in the country, actually, if you look at his approval ratings. And I just think that the Republicans can't have a replay of what happened last time, where you have Patricia Morgan and Joe Trillo, you know, on the outs and split the kind of conservatives or the Trump And Fung was base. so obsessed with Trillo, who wound up getting 4%. Yes. I mean, it was very yes. little. Think of all that time and energy that they beat each other up in the... Yeah, in yeah the it's climate. a waste of time. It really is. I think the other takeaway from 2018, though, is that Gina Raimondo built a juggernaut of a re-election campaign. And, I mean, I'm someone, I didn't support her in that race, but I can recognize it and respect it. Um, she and obviously finally got over 50% because everybody yeah. said, oh, she did well get over 52%, 50%, right? Right. I mean, she'd never been strong electorally. She didn't ever, you know, she was never a 60% candidate. And to her credit, she knew that. And we always knew she was a great fundraiser. The question was, what would she do with that money? And for a while in that campaign, it was a bit of a black box. And then at the end, we all realized um, she identified and got out every single vote she needed to do, which if you spend $2 million plus on an election in Rhode Island, you should do. It would be malpractice if you didn't. Um, but it just goes to show that, you know, you had a primary, you had national politics coming into play. But at the end of the day, if you raise the money and you build a campaign and you execute tactically, you can win. And you can do that as a Republican or a Democrat. In what that you're state. saying is campaigns matter. Campaigns do matter. Absolutely. What's the final word on this? And then we'll move on. What's the latest a Republican would have to do to start to really be serious and raise money? Well, it depends this whether you're going to. It this depends. Year? You mentioned someone, Kachiri. It depends whether you're in a position to self-fund or not. Right. That's really the crucial aspect here. Yeah, it's interesting. This was the 10th anniversary of uh, Bruce Sunland's death, which is hard yep. to believe. We could do a whole other half hour on Bruce Sunland, but maybe we'll save that for the uh, <laughs> for the extra. Uh, the Delta variant is running rampant in other parts of the country, and it's very interesting. Rhode Island, if you look at the stats, we're 1.8% uh, in infections, 17 people in the hospital, one death. So our numbers are down, but nationally, we're really having a problem. And I wonder, Governor McKee has said, Dan, I'm not going to be imposing any restrictions. I think the ship has already sailed on kids wearing masks in school. There was some question about that. The American Pediatric Association now is putting pressure on the CDC. So I wonder, for once, Rhode Island's in good position compared to the rest of the country. But this is concerning as you look around other parts of the country. Well, I think as with as we've monitored this entire time, we have to focus on hospitalizations. We, of course, have to monitor deaths, but we don't want it to get to that point. We have to see our emergency rooms overloaded. Which we're in we good shape see, here. Exactly. We have to see what's the system's capacity to to manage the uh, the continued fallout and these variants as they come out. The Delta will not be the, the last. 
And so as we increase our vaccination numbers, right, we should continue to see that number be managed. And, you know, we're, we're just, you know, we're probably going to, our next, you know, step is probably going to be booster shots and, and, and coming up with a way to continue the immunizations against the variants as they develop and as they're able to develop the booster shots. I think this will become more like a really bad seasonal flu that's going to have to be managed continuously as opposed to something like polio, which, you know, we've, we've convinced ourselves in this country you can just eradicate something in, in one generation and be done with it. So I think that's where we're going to go. But as long as we continue to manage it and we continue to keep hospitalizations down and we continue to monitor and protect vulnerable populations, you know, we have to get on with, with life as we have been doing here. No, that all sounds great, and I, I can't disagree with that. However, New England, and particularly Rhode Island, also wants tourism. You know, we're very... And New England, as a bubble, is doing phenomenally well. It's the best region in the country on all these indicators of vaccination and illness and hospitalization. But we have people who want to come to New England, and we want them to come to New England, particularly also in the fall. We want them to come from everywhere. And if they're going to come here, then we risk... For those populations that haven't been vaccinated, as you say, you know, we'll probably reach 80 percent by September, early October in the state. But then people coming in and, you know, who are unvaccinated and sort of always that constant threat of reinfection versus the economic health of the state. And I think McKee's going to side on the, on, the, on the economy side, right? I mean, you have to really build us back up. But there's a threat. And because we depend on tourism, not just for the summer, but also the fall. And the budgets and the economy has been camouflaged by the flood of money coming in, yeah. what really is the economic strength or, or, or health yeah. of the state? Yeah. I think they're linked. I think the vaccination rates, and we're seeing this, are linked to reopening the economy and really bringing things back. And I really don't like people who talk about this with the seasonal flu. There is a huge difference. It's not at all like the seasonal flu. The seasonal flu cannot be transmitted unless you have the flu. Unfortunately, uh, COVID-19 can be transmitted even without symptoms. So I think really vaccination, vaccination, vaccination has to be the message. And we're seeing the havoc that's been wreaked in the rest of the country. In southwest Missouri, uh, as of yesterday, you had to wait 48 hours to get into an emergency room. God bless you if you have a heart attack or a car accident. Right. I mean, this Delta variant... We're seeing some of the right-wingers get some religion on this. I noticed that Congressman Scalise from Louisiana, who represents a district that includes Plaquemine Parish, where they've had a 900% increase in the last couple of months in the Delta variant, decided to publicly finally get vaccinated. All politics is local, isn't it, Scotty? <laughs> well, right? well, the governor of Missouri also, the governor of Missouri is a, 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 as pretty conservative, as conservative yes. as you're, as you're going to get. That governor actually asked the Biden White House for some help uh, with outreach, saying we are trying to reach lots of different constituencies. There's the rural constituency, there's rural white, there's rural black, um, and there's Latino constituencies in uh, cities. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of different kinds of people who respond to messaging from different parties, different leaders. And the governor's is like, look, we may not be able to reach people who might vote Democrat or your, your people, Biden's people. Uh, so we need some help because we are going to get inundated. I mean, they're finally realizing, you know, the governor of Arkansas has been pretty responsible, Asa Hutchinson, about this with some mandates and some nots. And now he's like, I don't know what else to do. Uh, what do I do with people who are dying? I want to I want to prevent them from dying. So it's it's really, I think, reached an absolute crisis point in some of these states. You're right. And I don't think it's going to get better without, as you mentioned, better outreach. And one thing that you do point out, Wendy, that's true. This is a sprawling, diverse, very different country. There's some days where you think we're like two different societies. 
nowadays, where we, where people, everything's political. The national anthem, football, taking a knee, where you buy your Chick-fil-A, where you go to a fast food joint. I mean, it's the culture wars have almost taken over everything, and it's very sad to see this leak into vaccination and public health. All right, quick panel poll. Do you notice more people wearing masks indoors, and have you rethought whether you're going to be wearing a mask indoors? I don't know if you do already, but when you go to Shaw's or Walmart or whatever. So has your thinking changed in the last couple of weeks? Um, no, I've, I've been wearing a mask in supermarkets, at, uh, you know, drugstores. So to begin with, you've been doing that. Yes. Um, however, um, you know, Brown University has a fairly strict vaccination requirement right now, and so I'm still teaching, and I'm teaching socially distanced in a very big hall with very few students. Did you use some of the plexiglass from the state house? No, Did I'm they using. I've gone. With, I've, honestly, I've gone without a mask in the last couple of weeks because Brown University said that. But that's do you okay. notice more people wearing them indoors, or do you, are you paying um, attention? I haven't to that? yet on campus because we have a 97% rate vaccination. But when rate. you go to the grocery store. Um, I have noticed more people who are the clerks in the grocery stores. First, they didn't; they took their masks off, and now they're putting them back on. And, and I have no problem keep continuing to wear it. I just think as a matter of public health and safety, as Scott says, you know, you're vaccinated, but are you infected? Could you give it to somebody else? And, you know, why take the chance? What do you see? I don't think I've seen an increase in people wearing masks in, in any place I've, I've really gone or members of the public. And I, I'm not planning on putting on anymore. I'm vaccinated. I, I don't see the need why I, I have to vaccinations work. I believe in them. I don't know why I'd have to go walk around with, with a mask and have difficulty breathing as I try to do everything in the summer heat. So, Yeah, but just to be clear, right, vaccinations work for the most part, but it is possible for you to contract it, not have any symptoms, and then still pass it on. Difficult if you're vaccinated, but, but not I think But I think there's also a perception, too, because as people are putting on the mask, why do we put on the mask? To protect other people. I think there is a mentality with some people, it's going to protect me. I'm a little nervous and people may be breathing on me. So maybe if you had a, an N95 or one of those respirator things, maybe. But I don't think any, I don't think that people are beginning to put their masks on or thinking, oh, I'm going to protect somebody else. I, I don't think when, that. But I always, I do see people around with masks and I I, I certainly don't judge them. Hey, you want to wear it? Fine, you right? And quite frankly, I presume they, they may have a, a underlying health condition or something. Mm -hmm. Far be it from me to I certainly wouldn't judge them for wearing the mask. And it makes sense that they wear the mask and they should. Um, but between vaccinations and knowing your own health conditions and people who are more at risk than others, you know, wear the mask if you feel comfortable, or you feel the need to. And, and for everyone else, you should get vaccinated and then you, you shouldn't have to wear the mask. So, you know, folks, if you see Dan Riley around, he won't give you the stink eye. <laughs> He's non-judgmental. He's I in the nose. I, I haven't seen any indication that anybody cares. Like, no. nobody's giving you a dirty look yeah, if you have the mask doing, on or you don't. I don't think anybody... Doing your thing. Yeah. I think in medical settings, I had to go for some blood work this week, just routine. Oh, they all... Yeah. Everybody's masked up. And I do notice, uh, as Professor Schiller said, that... More clerks in some of the stores are wearing masks. But other than that, um, I think that a lot of vaccinated people have become pretty confident about going about their business without a mask. State buildings, state buildings and courts, they're still wearing masks. You walk into court or if you go into a state building, it's like this is March of 2020 or April of 2020. Uh, it's like things haven't changed. Um, you know, wearing a mask again, not wearing a mask really doesn't matter. I would hope that at some point, you know, customer service improves a bit. I see you're actually back that. in court. Is that uh, uh Yeah, I mean, 
depending on the calendar and depending on the judge. Granted, there were a lot of innovations that were good because of COVID, and they discovered Zoom and things like that, and you don't have to go to court for a two-minute hearing and things like that. Yeah, but you really feel badly for those people who had civil cases that really just got put off to the side. It's hard enough to get your case heard, and we've really lost at least a year, right? Civil cases, jury trials, grand jury investigations. Did they try to move some of the criminal stuff along? They, they, They did because you really have to. I mean, you have... Um, you have to prioritize those cases because there are certain, you know, constitutional rights at stake, there's statutes of limitations at play and things like that. But absolutely, access to justice has been absolutely hurt. And that's why it was, it was a, a, a positive story coming out of the pandemic, if there was one, that the courts did adopt, or adapt, I should say, faster than other government agencies did because they had the need to. And practitioners like me just hope that some of those innovations you know, stick around. Well, this, is, this is the big thing. The next frontier is employer mandate. As I said, Brown University is yeah. requiring all of us uh, uh, employees, staff, and students who are on campus to be vaccinated. And I think you're seeing uh, appeals court just upheld Indiana University's requirement. So this is the next frontier, right, for corporations, for private businesses. You know, do they just say you either get vaccinated, like in Houston, the hospital that fired uh, healthcare workers, if you're not going to get vaccinated, you're gone. And is that going to be upheld or there will be litigation against that in the next you know, six it's, months to a year? It's Quickly. Not, it, it's not that novel of, a, of, a, of an argument or a concept, though. Courts generally have upheld the right of employers to require vaccinations against communicable diseases, provided there are certain safeguards in place for religious protections and those with medical conditions. Okay. And I don't Let, think this will be any different. Let's do uh, outrageous and or kudos. Scotty, let's begin with you. Mine is simply the anti-vaccination nuttiness of some of the conservative media and the people at CPAC cheering when President Biden didn't hit his 70%. And I really wish that the people like the Tucker Carlson's and some of these folks and the Onans and the Newsmaxes and all these people would just calm down a little bit and get their vaccinations and understand that this is a real public health problem. And it's also linked to the economy. You might be surprised some of the people who are yelling the most are probably vaccinated. I bet they are, way. and they won't just won't tell us. Exactly. Well, it's not good business. Wendy, what do you have? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I, I think the general, my outrage is, is a general outrage at uh, sort of the complete abandonment of, you know, what we call good behavior in public, right? Getting on a plane, <laughs> flying on a plane, listening to uh, flight attendants, or, you know, if uh, we have all sorts of difficulties, obviously, with police stops and police violence. But on the other hand, you know, that police officers are increasingly at risk when they pull you over for some sort of speeding violation or something, partly because of guns, partly because of just behavior now, right? So everybody seems to be more at risk for an altercation of some kind that will hurt them because our moral code or our civil code seems to have completely eroded. And, you know, I, you know, people will blame Donald Trump. I'm not blaming Donald Trump about this. This is, you know, a complicated thing to be raised to say you behave a certain way in public. It's been happening for a really long time. I don't think it's, it's anything brand new, but it's come to a real fever pitch, no pun intended. Uh, and I think we've really got to stop and say, wait, we have to reimpose what is acceptable to do in public and what is not acceptable. Yeah, who gets in fist fights on a plane? Get in the plane constantly, and go to where constantly. you're going. they got to call the police to get yeah, the guy airlines, at the end. They're not serving alcohol on some airlines now because, like, forget it. People are getting out of control. Yeah, so. exactly. Dan, what do you have? You know, <clears throat> it's an outrage slash concern. Uh, I know it's about a month past since we passed the budget. Not as exciting as these other outrages. But um, 
you know, we had a 52% increase in the state budget over the last two years, and this is going to be the, 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 the landmine that is going to stay under the surface for probably another year or so until it really blows up in the state's face. Um, it's filled with a ton of federal money, which comes with a lot of restrictions, so you can't just use it for whatever you want. And my concern is that we greatly expanded the budget. We really kicked the can on a lot of issues and problems that need to be solved, and we didn't, you know, replace that money uh, in programs that we could then, you know, fund one-time things like building construction schools, one-time projects. We just funneled it all into operating expenses. So now we're, you know, the Rhode Island Foundations uh, was soliciting ideas for how to spend down the money. <laughs> we're, we're, we are going to have a fiscal nightmare in this state when in the, two or three years when the spigot turns off from the feds. Yeah, great. Folks, I'm sorry that is all the time we have. Uh, what a great panel. Scotty, and Dan and Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, uh, even though it's the middle of the summer, it's never a dull moment here on Lively. You never know what's going to happen between now and then. Next week, we should have details. Maybe we should have Wendy back to react to the uh, <laughs> a little sidebar reaction to the uh, Providence Teachers uh, contract. If you don't catch us Friday at uh, 7 or Sunday at noon, you can always catch us on social media, our website, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Uh, thank you again. We hope you're having a good summer. Join us back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.